Welcome to Podcast Payoffs, episode number 13. My name is Gord Vickman here with Dan Sullivan. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Gord. You're taking us back in time today. Yes, we are. And we're going to be discussing some of the technological changes. You know, we're sort of on the tail end of the COVID. Some people called it a crisis. Some people were not really in crisis at all, but it was definitely a thing. And so much of the content is focused, at least at Strategic Coach and from your mindset, Dan, on, you know, how we're going to get out of this better than we were going in. We never focused on the scary stuff and the doom and gloom, whereas others might have been. But you as an entrepreneur, you know, having coached for decades, you recognize that there was an opportunity here, if not many opportunities to use and leverage what's going on right now to perhaps, you know, come out of this a little bit better than before. So today on the show, thank you for joining us. We're going to be chatting just future focused mindsets and adaptation by necessity, because necessity is the mother of all invention. And when you really need something, people can be pretty intuitive and innovative in regards to getting what they need. So Dan, you shared something on LinkedIn I thought was pretty interesting. And you said, if you took someone from 200 years ago and you put them in the world 150 years ago, they'd be completely overwhelmed with the technological changes. Now we would look at that in 2020 and think, you know, these are a bunch of Luddites and cavemen, but you're right, 200 years ago to 150, people would be pretty freaked out (laughs) by what had happened. So can you just explain what you meant by that in terms of the mindset and how can others apply that mindset to be adaptable and to embrace these changes. Yeah. And a lot of spoken today about, you know, we're living in the greatest technological age of all time, but actually it may have been in the 19th century. So just using your years, it would be from 1820 to 1870, 50 year period, 200 years ago to 150 years ago. And you just have to think about what was true in 1820 and what was different in 1870. For one thing, up until 1820, generally, people couldn't travel any faster than anybody had ever traveled 2,000 years ago, because it was basically, it was horses. You know, you could go as fast as a horse could go. But that was true in 1820. It had been true for 2,000 years, but 50 years later, the top locomotives could get 60, 70 miles an hour on a straight run, on a straight run. And this must have been amazing. You know, we haven't really had anything too much faster happen to us over the last 50 years. If you took the fastest jet airliners 50 years ago, ours aren't any faster. We don't have the sense of going any faster. Are there planes that can go a lot faster? Yes, but they're not available today. The other thing is that in 1820, there wasn't light at night, okay? But 50 years later, cities were lit up with electricity, okay? So you're going a lot faster, things are lit up, which means your day is longer, which means you can actually work at night. It means a large number of people can work at night, entertainment goes into the night, So that's a couple of things. And the other thing is, in 1820, you couldn't remember what anyone sounded like when they were alive. But in 1870, people who had been alive since around 1860, you could listen to their voice because recording. So you just take those three things. You know, photography came in. You could capture things. Already early movie films were starting to happen. And there were people who couldn't keep up with change. There were people who were disrupted by the change and paralyzed them. And there were people who thrived on it. They had a sense of thriving about it. 
And the most intelligent person in 1870 was every bit as intelligent as the most intelligent person is in 2020, 150 years later. I could go even further back than that. The smartest Greek was as smart in relationship to their world as the smartest American or European is today in relationship to their world. Smart is smart. Smart is not a function of accumulation of knowledge. Smart is maximizing the value of whatever knowledge you have. And maybe the context of the time in which you live. I mean, I know it's true that if you went, for example, if you had some mystical ability in a time machine, if you went back in time and you found a human being, homo sapien, born around 40,000 years ago, and you pulled that child into 2020 and raised it as a child born in 2020, there would be no neurological difference, there would be no lack of brain power. So if you go back a little bit farther than 40,000, now you're getting into some deficiencies and some just different structures and the way that we are wired. But I remember reading that and I thought, wow, that's freaky. Mm -hmm. 40,000 years ago, you picked up that baby and, you know, if the cave family let you, brought them into 2020 and raised that child in Oakville, Ontario or Chicago, Illinois or Los Angeles or wherever, London, England. That child would be perfectly functional at school and you would not know the difference. It's just the context and it's the context and the time in which you live, right? Yeah. You've clarified the whole issue. What we think of our superiority, you know, of being modern people is just a function that we're dealing with a totally different context that we think is a better context than the context that people used to live in. But they were just as masterful in relationship to their world as we're masterful in our world. Yeah. So, Dan, 76 years young, you are. How many times do you think there have been moments throughout your lifetime when you've kind of sat back just in a moment of clarity and said, wow, in regards to what technologically is going on? And is there one specific process that you have to integrate that you know, into your life? And that other people listening to the show can adopt that mindset to not maybe get so freaked out by the rapid change and the speed with which things are going right now. Is there one rule that you have or do you just kind of make it up as each new capability comes? There's discomfort. I mean, when you switch locations and, you know, you're in different settings, in different areas of relationship. It doesn't take me a long time, but there's very definitely a period when I kind of go quiet. And I'm just kind of observing what's going on. And if you ask me to be really active during that period, I probably couldn't because I got to get my bearings, okay? But I will say an ability I have, which I've noticed because more by noticing that other people don't have this ability. It's a contrast and it has to do with, I can't remember ever feeling not at home. And, you know, I've been in all sorts of different places. I grew up on a farm and I haven't lived on a farm since I was 11 years old. That was a real shift. Moving away from a small town to Washington, D.C., that was a big shift and everything. And then being in the Army during the Vietnam War and going to South Korea and spending two years in South Korea, that was a big shift. But I can't say I was ever lonely in any of those shifts. And I can't say that I ever didn't feel at home in a very short period of time, you know, three or four days, and I kind of got the handle on the local terrain and sort of a pattern that you can establish on a daily basis. And I'm pretty quick at that. 
But I do have a context that has helped me a great deal. And I recognized in the early 1970s that we were going into one of the four biggest shifts that have ever happened to human beings. Okay. So I'll just tease you with that. And then you can, you can pull it out of me. What is it, Dan? Come on, Dan. What are they? (laughs) Well, I think it has to do with language and the ability to communicate. So obviously the first enormous shift is that there were humanoid creatures and they, sort of have identified by about a dozen creatures that are kind of human-like, but they don't exist anymore. They don't exist anymore. There's just, you mentioned 12, probably 100,000 years ago, there were 12. I said 12. You mentioned 40,000 years. I think it was down to about two or three, you know, very famous. And these are human-like creatures. They look like humans and everything, but one of them's got a big advantage and it can talk. Okay. And the talking came about because of a structural change in the human jaw and how the teeth are situated and the use of the tongue. Neanderthals, for example, they clearly had art, they clearly had teamwork, you know, they drew pictures on the wall. But by examining the Neanderthals' jaw structure, it's pretty well established they couldn't master language, speaking language like humans can. The moment you can talk, it means that you can really interact with a wider group of people. You can put plans together. You can plan ahead. You can have words that represent the future, the past, so you can make distinctions. You can learn all sorts of new things, and everybody who's born learns the new language, and so they add to it. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why you ended up with just one, because our communication skills were better. Humans' communication skills were better. There was an ice age between 40,000 years ago and 8,000 years ago, essentially. Most people think the last ice age ended, and Neanderthals didn't make it through. Humans were the only humanoids that made it through the ice age, and probably survival was really dependent on better and higher communication skills. So I think that's the big thing. And very quickly, there was learning how to speak, and then learning how to write, and then having written language where you could communicate over time. You could keep records that people later could read the records, and you could communicate over a distance. A pottery shard written, that pottery shard goes 500 miles, and people say, oh, yes, yes, great joke, great joke. So the written communication just becomes absolutely crucial. For example, Almost none of the American Indian tribes, you know, basically their culture was not too similar to cultures that were in Europe four, five, six thousand years ago, but they didn't really have written language. We don't know much about the North American Indians because there were no really records and they couldn't communicate at a distance. And of course, the European settlers who came had mastered written communication. So writing, and then you had printing. I think printing was the big thing. And this, just when everybody can get the whole basis of written language on the planet, and then we get to the microchip, and now we have digital language. And it's not 100 times better. It's infinitely times bigger that we can communicate. I mean, we're communicating digitally right now, and it's all because one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero. all there is. So that's it. So I'm a student of history, and I like 
seeing shifts. So I said, we're going into one of the four great shifts that have ever happened. So I've always had this in my mind. So I said, well, you know, I think almost anything new can happen right now. But COVID caught me by surprise. I never had that in my mind. I wasn't thinking pandemic, I can tell you. No. But I adjusted and it took me about 24 hours. I said, oh, this is really new. We got to adjust. The old normal is gone. Something's new. So I feel I'm actually more flexible and more adaptable at 76 than I would have been at 50. Why? Cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of helps. But just teeing off your microchip, that obviously leads into the personal computer and that yeah. leads into the smartphone and the, you know. Internet. The internet, yeah. I mean, the smartphone is ubiquitous. And we're, you know, July 29th, 2007, the iPhone 1 launched. Mm -hmm. So we're 13 years into this brave new world. My theory about, you know, the acceleration with which technological change is happening, the internet has everything to do with it. That's undeniable. And it's just the speed with which we can communicate, share ideas, work remotely. Because, you know, 20 years ago, you could be this, you know, goofy little nerd working in your mom's garage on some computer and you're working on it. That's where Apple came from. That's where Dell came from. That's where Bill Gates, who wasn't exactly, you know, a rags to riches story. He had a great leg up from his grandfather who had a lot of cash, but he still worked really, really hard and, yeah. you know, did all his coding and had computers available to him. And that's what is fueling the rapid change. So I've been asked a few times, you know, how do you keep up with all this stuff specifically related to podcasting? And I think there's three things that you can do if you just want to keep up because there's so many new technology, so many new hosts, so many new platforms. I just saw this new service yesterday. It's a voiceover service. And what you do is you basically type in your script. It has an AI, you know, machine learning driven engine, and it will read your script in a human voice and it doesn't sound robotic. It actually sounds like a warm male or female voice. There's accents. So I think there's 23 languages available. And it actually sounds pretty good. Now, me being an audio professional, I heard a few things. I'm like, eh. yeah. But I think the overwhelming majority of people would have no idea that it's basically a computer talking to you. So the three things that I use just to keep up with everything that's going on in the podcast space to make sure that we're always on top and being leaders at coaches, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. There's about 50 of them that just give you the headlines, the top line. So you don't have to go and search for that. Let someone else curate all that news for you. And every morning when I'm having my coffee, I just go through it. And most of the stuff does, doesn't really interest me or us, but just to keep up with what's going on. And then as far as the technology, the application. Oh, okay, so we have newsletters. You can subscribe to all of those. And then wondering and wandering. That's what I'll call it. Sometimes when I have an hour and I just want to kill it and I want to learn something, and you do this a lot, Dan, I see you doing it all the time. It's just sort of, you know, there is something to be said for mindless internet wandering because you never really know mm -hmm. what you're going to find. And the text to voiceover service was something I just stumbled over quite literally last night. And then I went on their site and I tested it all and looked at it. I thought it was pretty neat. And then YouTube tutorials are the final one. It is fascinating. It used to be fascinating, but now I'm a believer. But you can quite literally learn anything. The full breadth of all human knowledge is available on the internet and it's all free. Yep. I changed the internal air filter on my Volkswagen car with a YouTube video. I went to the parts store and bought it, watched the YouTube video, how to change the air filter, pop the hood, and I accomplished that. And I probably saved myself 200 bucks from having to go to a mechanic. And I remember yeah. closing the hood and just thinking, my God, people 20 years ago were yeah. really missing out. You know, 
Stephen Poulter, and he's you know a very advanced IVF doctor in vitro fertilization doctor, lives on Long Island, and he's got three really unique sons. One of them is about 12 years old right now. His name is Sam, Sam Poulter. Sam started probably about, probably as soon as he got into school, he would get interested in a topic and then he would find five YouTube explanations of the thing that he was talking about. And he would master this and he would master this, how to source really, really cheap products from China. And there was an instructional film on everything that he wanted to learn. He said, I can, right now, he says, any new subject, I can put the curriculum together with downloads in about 45 minutes. And he said, and then I I just watched one film and then I watched another film. And I said, well, what was new about this film that didn't have the other one? And then he does the third one, he does the fourth one, he does the fifth one. He told his father, I think it was probably a year into this, and he said, can you explain to me why I have to go to school? (laughs) Yeah. And his father said, what? And he says, well, because after I've watched five YouTube films, I know more about this topic than any teacher would. And he's probably right. Yeah. And he says, up to date, it's the latest information. And he said, so really, he said, there's really no need for me. And they don't teach the subjects that I really want to learn. So just think about that for a second. This is a 2020 12-year-old, you know, it's the year 2020, 12-year-old, who is just basically mastering everything the human race has learned over the last 100,000 years, you know. And it's all there and it's all free. As a matter of fact, there's probably five YouTube films on what human beings knew 40,000 years ago, and he would be more or less an expert on it within about a day or two. That's what was interesting to me when some of the, you know, academia and the higher education, the institutions up here in Canada, we're in Toronto, U of T and Ryerson, and then down in the States, you have all the Ivy Leagues and then the community colleges and whatnot. They're saying they're going to go online and they're going to teach virtually. So we're going to do Zoom. And they're saying like, you know, Harvard and Yale and Brown and everyone, they're all going to do Zoom lectures. And I remember reading that and I thinking, have you guys heard of YouTube? (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys heard of YouTube? Can you not download a PDF of the course material and just read the books yourself? Save your mom and dad $90,000. I just can't see how people are going to pay regular tuition to sit there and watch a teacher or a professor lecture things that are available on the internet for free. Yeah. Well, the real issue is that you're very self-directed, you're self-learning, I'm very self-directed, I'm self-learning. It's not a separation between the smart and the not smart. It's whether someone is self-directed because a lot of people, they don't have a chip in their brain that allows them to actually construct their own learning program. And it's not a function of intelligence, it's a function of a certain kind of independence, a certain kind of outlier mentality, you know. So my sense is that we have to capture general knowledge that it would be important for everybody to at least be minimally available for it. The big problem is people want equality, but there is no basis for equality to start with. Everything's unequal. I mean, My experience is totally unequal to your experience. Mm -hmm. You have the ability to learn from experiences. I don't even have the foggiest idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I have the same thing and add a third person, and it's true for the third person. So my feeling is that there are 
attitudes that are general attitudes that interfere with people actually utilizing the latest technologies to benefit from them. And one of them said, we got to make sure that all the students are learning at the same rate. We got to make sure that everybody in society is equal in what they're learning. And of course, it's impossible. They wouldn't even know how to even measure that. But it's a thought that interferes with people going off and just teaching themselves. What they're pining for is equality of outcome. And what we have widely available right now is equality of opportunity, but the equality of outcome does not exist because people will process things differently. I think upbringing has a lot to do with that. You and I are a little bit similar in the way that we grew up. You had wide gaps between yourself and your siblings, so you had to figure out ways to entertain yourself on the farm. I have two older sisters, and when we would go to the family cottage or we would go somewhere to visit my grandparents in the summer, you know, Lori and Alana would run off and do whatever the girls wanted to do. And I was by myself. So my grandfather was amazing. Toby was just, he would, you know, entertain me as much as he could, but grass has to be cut and the shingles falling off the roof and the sauna needs something. So, you know, I'm flipping over rocks and hitting hornets nests with sticks and I'm picking up frogs and throwing them into the lake. Maybe that is sort of the foundation for the desire to always want to be learning because I I have this thing for a while I thought it was maybe it's like a mental problem (laughs) where I would see something and if I didn't know how it worked I would immediately have to find out and I would just be determined I need to know how that works even if it had nothing to do with my life or career I would be interested to learn how that worked and I thought that everybody was like that but what you're suggesting is that it's a percentage of that what percentage of the population do you think is self-driven like that well You know, the measurement that I'm most familiar with is people after 20 years in the work world are classified as self-employed or entrepreneurial, okay? And it was 5% 50 years ago, and it's 5% today. It's 5% in the United States. It's 5% in Canada. It's 5% in Europe. You know, it's 5% anywhere you want to look in the world. There's about one out of 20 individuals who just decide not to earn money and create opportunities for themselves in a way that's similar to the other 19. And people say, you know, I keep getting this in entrepreneurial circles, you know, like, you know, in the future, everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. I said, yeah, one out of 20, one out of 20. And they say, no, I'm just seeing entrepreneurs everywhere. I said, the general population's going up. <laughs> you know, I mean, the global population since I've been born is 350% higher. It's 2.2 billion in 1944 and pushing 8 billion right now. And they said, well, why can't it be more than 5%? And I said, maybe it's not needed. Mm-hmm. 5%, you know, is all that's needed of innovation and people being renegades and people rebelling and everything. Maybe it's, you don't need any more than 5%. You might not wish for more than 5% because the whole world would just be a zoo if everybody was a renegade inventing things. And is it harsh? I don't know. Um, I mean, there are people who are going to want to stay where they are and others who want to grow. But I mean, for someone like you and the environment that we're in a strategic coach, you know, that I get to tickle every now and then is, we're surrounded by so many people who are doing so many amazing things, especially in the free zone program and what they're up to with their collaborations. You know, I just did a two hour session, which is kind of just a connector, what we call a connection call. And I had about 40 entrepreneurs and now we're pushing into the fourth month since the lockdown. And what came up again and again 
I hope this doesn't end too soon. I'm just making so much progress. I'm just making so much progress. It's like snow days when you're in school. You don't have to go to school. You know, you can just do what you want to do. And I was sitting there and I was saying, boy, you know, I live in rarefied conditions. Day in, day out, I just have really talented, successful, ambitious people telling me, God, I love what's happening right now. And then you watch the news. I don't actually watch television, but I read the news. And it's a very different experience that they're having than the, what's being reported on the news. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, let's wrap with this. I have one mm-hmm. final question for you. So there's the cycle, as I've sorted it out in my head when we're processing new technology and capabilities. And I had Zoom in my mind. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next episode. But you have discovery when people learn of something, just like the software as a service that I learned of last night that can turn text into a voiceover and it sounds pretty good. You have discovery, then you have adaptation when you actually start to use it, and then you have digestion. And digestion would signify something that was once new has now become ubiquitous. So the smartphone in 2007 was something people were a little freaked out by. They said, this is kind of cool. 2020, where we are right now, most people can't even fathom leaving the house or even going to the washroom without their iPhone in their hands. So how long do you think it's going to take before this new medium, Zoom specifically, because strategic coach, if you weren't aware, for the first time in 30 years, the virtual signature program where you can attend a signature program workshop from anywhere in the world. More information on that, strategiccoach.com. Very simple to find. How long before this becomes ubiquitous, in your opinion, and we are just in the brave new world where Zoom is just what people are using as a default? Yeah, well, Zoom is one of those lucky technologies that becomes the verb. You know, it's like Google, it's like Xerox. It just has entered the language. And you wouldn't have predicted it four months ago because there are other platforms similar, virtual platforms. I think there's going to be great inequality to this. I think the economy, for example, the players in the economy, there's been a big shift in inequality in just four months because some people had prepared themselves for this. They were using Zoom. Their problem was people at the other end weren't using Zoom. In the last three months, probably every entrepreneur who got used to Zoom three or four years ago suddenly discovered that all their clients and prospects are using Zoom. So all of a sudden, there will be a part of the economy that just shoots way ahead. It'll be extraordinarily unequal to the people who haven't adjusted to Zoom. It'd be like electricity. You know, some companies are using electricity. Some companies are using telephones, but the others aren't. I said extraordinary inequality. And my belief is that all jumps in human society, but certainly in human history, is where one sector of society suddenly makes a jump with a new technology and it panics everybody else that they're falling behind. And now they are incentivized because they've got no alternative. It's not until you have no alternative that you really jump. And my feeling is it's going to happen real fast with us. In the United States, it'll it'll happen within a year. You know, we won't be talking about educating everybody. We'll be talking about Zooming everybody. And we're on the precipice of that right now as we communicate via Zoom from across town. Me on the west side of Toronto, you on the east side. Yeah, normally we're across the table, but coming to the end of the COVID 
situation. I hesitate to call it a crisis because a lot of people that are in my galaxy were never in crisis at all. So mm-hmm. here we are and moving on forward. Dan, that seems like a pretty logical spot to wrap up. If you enjoyed podcast payoffs, tell a friend, share it with one friend. We'd really appreciate it. And thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Dan. Okay. Thank you, Gordon.